Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We all know that the world needs all the energy for change that we can give it, but we also know how easy it is to burn out on activism. Fortunately, Amkari Williams has formulated methods of activism for the long haul, and she shares the insights and strategies in her book, Microactivism, How You Can Make a Difference in the World Without a Bullhorn. Amkari has lots of earned wisdom about the issue because of her former work as a political consultant, followed by her decades as an activism coach. Considering the approaches and factors that make activism sustainable, Amkari helps us find which kinds of work are right for us, including the structures that can keep us energized and effective long term. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. I'm Kari Williams, joins us via Zoom from Western Massachusetts. I'm Kari, it's so wonderful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Oh, thank you, Mark. I'm really, really pleased to be here with you. Just in terms of transparency with our listeners, you're talking to me at the end of a long day of a lot of interviews and such. You still look fresh as the morning dew. How do you do it? Is that because you've <laughs> taken all your own advice about microactivism? I think it's that there's probably a picture in my attic somewhere that looks terrible. But um, <laughs> I know it's, you know... I actually really love talking about microactivism. And so even though it is the end of a long day, I find these conversations energizing. I really do. So I appreciate your asking and thank you for the compliment. Well, you earned it. And, and just let you know, I it's part of my beliefs, practices as a Quaker is I will never say anything except at least the truth. It doesn't mean I have to say every bad thing that I can think in the world. But I'm not thinking any right now, so you're safe. Okay, good. <laughs> you also have a long history with activism. I think you've been coaching, life coaching people for something like 30 years, political consultant along the way. Give me your short bio, if you would. Yeah, the short bio is I started as an actor, and I did that for quite a while. And then at some point thought, there aren't enough roles for, at that time, Black women that were really complicated and interesting. And I thought, let me move into something else. And so I moved into political consulting. And mostly what I was doing was helping people communicate their stories, because really, that's what running a campaign is, is you're telling your story and hoping it connects with the people you want to have vote for you. At some point, I thought, you know what? Political consulting isn't what it should be because of the way our politics is structured. So this work now is kind of my penance for the political consulting. <laughs> and I'm, I'm hoping that I get dispensation for the good work I'm trying to do now. <laughs> but I basically just came to realize that the most important thing we could do is the small things we can do and to do them regularly and to do them with as much grace and as much love as we can put into them. And that's how I evolved into the whole philosophy of microactivism. Did you get raised as an activist, an activist family? Was it religiously, spiritually, your background? How did you get to this point where you dedicate your life to this? Well, 
I wasn't raised in a religious background at all. My mother went to English Catholic convent schools as a child and basically said that she'd done that for all of her kids and none of us was going to have to do that. But my father was a humanitarian and a relief worker, and he worked all over the world in some really harsh conflicts. He was very involved in resolving the war in the former Yugoslavia. He was very involved in participating in helping the victims of the genocide in Rwanda. And he started doing work really resettling Vietnamese refugees who were coming to the United States. So I grew up with this understanding that A, I was fortunate, and B, there were people in the world who were really struggling in ways that I could never even begin to imagine. And so as a kid, I started doing things like trick-or-treating for UNICEF. And then I started doing theater that my friends and I would put on shows to basically get people to understand the plight of children around the world who were in far less fortunate circumstances than we were. Then as I got older, it became political theater. And then I did the acting thing and then the political consulting thing. And now here we are. Political theater, that interests me as one of the steps along the way. What kind of things were you doing? Where were you doing this? Oh, you know, plays like Bertolt Brecht and that kind of thing. In New York, off-off-Broadway, we created a theater company and did a whole bunch of just different plays that explored different political philosophies. And it was fascinating. And it was a really good education. And it exposed me to things I probably wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to. I was a history major in college. So my whole focus was really on understanding the interdynamics between people, especially because the area I was interested in was the period between the two world wars. I really wanted to understand how we got from World War One to World War Two, And political theater, especially the theater of Brecht, really is, was a window into that time and made it clearer how we got from one to the other. And I think that still we can extrapolate some of those lessons for today. We both came of age close enough in time that there's enough worldview watching things post 1960s and 70s, how the world was going. Certainly, I think the rising star of women with respect to our culture, many important changes with respect to race, disabilities eventually being recognized as a place for equality, sex and gender issues coming up. We've seen all of this in the space of our life. So it's real interesting to me that you go back to interwar between World War One and World War Two, And I think history is one of the most valuable things we can learn from because without a basis of what has and hasn't worked before, we don't have much idea of what might work this next time. What is it about the interwar times that particularly strikes you? One of the things that amazed me about it was there was a, a really super strong pacifist movement in the United States, anti-war movement, millions of people signing up. I think it came out of Massachusetts, didn't it? That they weren't going to participate in war. And then World War II came along and everybody signed up. What took you to that time in our history? You know, my focus was really more on Europe than the United States. But 
in both places, there was a rising tide of fascism that happened between the wars and that sort of led us from World War One into World War Two for a lot of reasons, including the treaty that was negotiated with Germany at the end of World War One was basically a setup for World War Two. It was so punitive that if you'd been thinking about it, clearly you would have said, well, this isn't going to work for very long. But people were angry and people were trying to seek revenge. And actually, that's one of the lessons that I think is most important is look what that led to. Revenge seeking is not the answer. This is not how we get out of the cycles of violence that we seem to be so enmeshed in in our society. So from my perspective, you really have to drill down and look at the individual humans and what is the impact of our behavior and our decisions on humans en masse, on a whole group of people. How are we setting ourselves up for either success down the road, by which I mean peace, or failure, by which I mean conflict? We seem incapable of finding our way to peace, and we seem very dedicated to conflict. And I'm not sure why that is, because ultimately, no one really wins. It just sort of goes back and forth. And in the context of what's happening in the world right now, I heard something that was so disturbing to me that Netanyahu said, he said, Israel's response to the Hamas attacks would reverberate for generations. And my heart broke. I thought, why would you ever wish that on your children and your grandchildren and your great grandchildren? Why would you want that for them? And it was really disturbing to me. And I find that our governments are doing their citizens a disservice when they speak like that, when they act like that, because what people on both sides of that particular conflict want is peace. They want their children to grow up. They want their children to be happy and healthy and live long lives, which is what anybody wants. And we're not creating an environment where that happens. And I think that to take on the work of activism in what ever particular form it manifests for each one of us is to move the needle towards peace. And I think that that is really what we're here to do. One of the authors I've interviewed along the way in these past 18 years advanced the theory that Jews collectively nationwide, because of the horrible events of the Holocaust, that they have an intergenerational form of PTSD. We all know, I think, the statement, hurt people hurt people. And that, in fact, that that's part of what can be behind Netanyahu's worldview and what Carrie said. That doesn't justify it. It doesn't say it's good. But maybe if we understand that, that maybe we know where we can find the leverage point to change it. And you're finding ways to change things in the world through your work advocated as microactivism. The book that just came out by Mkari L. Williams is Microactivism, How You Can Make a Difference in the World Without a Bullhorn. And the thought I had right away talking to you, Mkari, was that a person who was into theater should like having a bullhorn. <laughs> you know, it's funny when people say that because... I am actually quite an introverted person. And at the same time, I'm very comfortable speaking on stage. And I, I think that it has something to do with having been an actor. I was playing a character. And now, even though I'm not playing a character, I understand how to tap into that part of me 
that wants to communicate an idea that's important to me that wants to speak to other people. But uh, yeah, a bullhorn, it's not really my thing. But if someone said you ha- the only way that you can communicate about microactivism is to use a bullhorn, I would be using it and sort of probably saying, you don't have to do this, folks. You don't have to have one of these. Because <laughs> I really think it's important that people understand that being an activist does not mean inherently that you have to take center stage. It does not mean that you have to be loud. It does not mean that you have to attend a march. But there are a lot of ways of making a difference in the world that are small and subtle and important and sustainable. And sustainability is really the key thing here, because nothing is going to change overnight, which means we need to be able to keep at it. There is a lot of temptation to do the big acts. I mean, everyone asks, could World War II have been prevented if only Hitler had been assassinated, right? So uh, use it with a gun. People want that kind of a quick fix. You talk about activist archetypes and bullhorn people are certainly one kind, yes. but it's not for everybody. Could you talk about the archetypes and what implications that has in terms of the kind of activism one does? Sure. So the archetypes, I actually sort of based them out of my acting lens. I thought of it through the lens of making a film. So on a film set, you have your stars and they're the headliners in my archetype. And then you have the producer who makes sure that all of the pieces of the production are in order. You have the organizer. Their role on a film might be they're in charge of lighting or they're in charge of food. And then you have the indispensables. And those are the people on a film who would be the background actors whose names you will likely never know unless you happen to see someone say, Oh my gosh, that's Joe. But those people without them the film would look weird. So they are seriously important, but they're unheralded. I took those ideas and created the archetypes around them. So the headliner would be someone like Dr. King or Greta Thunberg. And a producer, you're not going to know their name, but they're the person who's just behind the headliner, keeping them on track saying, okay, here's all the things we're doing. Here's everything you need. I, you know, you go do the speaking out part because you're bringing in people to this movement, to this cause. The organizer would be the person who's perhaps charged with taking care of making sure a specific event happens as it should. And then the indispensables are the people who are working on all of the projects the organizer says for them to do. So they're the people who are sending out the flyers and writing the emails, inviting people and making sure there's coffee and that there's toilet paper in the bathroom and all of the things that are not glamorous, but you need to have those things done. And you put all of them together and you have something. I mean, it's like this. Greta Thunberg is amazing. The work she's doing on climate change and trying to get people to take serious action is so inspiring. But if she hadn't been able to enlist all of those millions of people to her cause, she'd just be a kid sitting outside the Swedish parliament in the cold on Fridays. She couldn't have done this by herself, what she is doing. 
she's fulfilling one role, but there are all these people behind her fulfilling the other roles. And that is the point of microactivism is that there is a role for each of us to play. We just need to find our role and then step into it. In the book, you give us some questions to help us figure out what our activist type is. Do you have your copy of the book, Andy? I do. And you can probably find things more quickly in the book than I can. I just finished reading it last week. I think it might be helpful for people to have some idea of how you figure out what your type is. Question five, as far as activism goes, your favorite thing to do is A, attend a protest march. You want your voice heard and you love the communal energy. B, write a letter to the editor, call or email your elected officials. C, start a movement. D, organize a protest. You're still bitter that you missed the anti-Vietnam War movement and Woodstock. Which, what's your answer to that? Oh, that, you know, (laughs) all of them, Bob, right? So it's really kind of all. Although it's funny, I actually, the one I would probably do the least is attend a protest march, because that's just not really my thing. But I would definitely do the others. And I would start, I would go to a march if I had to. But if I had to pick which of those I would do, I would probably say... I would write a letter to the editor and call my elected officials. And write a book. That should, that's another. And write a book. Yeah, yeah that one's not in there, but yeah. <laughs> Are there any other questions that you think would be particularly illustrative for our listeners for Spirit in Action? They can get an idea of what you're aiming at, Omkari? Yeah, I actually, Mark, I'm curious as to what you think about question four. This is a question that really, ha- you know, it's, it's really sort of American based. And it's the question is you're on the subway or it could be a bus. It's you're on public transportation and you see immigrations and customs enforcement officers asking brown people for proof that they're in the United States legally. So, you know, these are the people who are tasked with finding people who have are undocumented and perhaps deporting them. And I think that this is kind of maybe my favorite question because the options are start filming the officers on your phone and live stream it to social media, calmly engage the officers in conversation in hopes of distracting them so that undocumented people can get off at the next stop, stand up and using your outside voice, tell everyone in the subway car that they are not legally required to speak with the officers and that the officers do not have the right to search them or their property without a properly executed warrant, or move quietly to the next car and warn passengers that immigration and customs enforcement is on the train. And I think that this one sort of gets to the heart of how people engage in activism in a very clear way. It's like, which of those things activates you, right? Which of those things gets you thinking, yep, that's what I would do. Absolutely. No question. And I think it's just important for us to know who we are and who we're not, and to be fine with both of those things, right? To just be able to say, yeah, that's not how I would do this and be fine with it. So we are in a society that's constantly comparing us to other people, we should be like this person or look at this person's life, we should have their life. And I don't think that that is how it should actually be. I think we should be living our lives and doing activism our way 
and making the contribution that only we can make to the greater good. So I'm not sure if that really answers your question. I want us both, you, Ankari, me, Mark, helps me to answer question four. Which one would you do? I, the thing is, I'm an extrovert. I'm not an introvert. I was an introvert through ninth grade, but in 10th grade, I flipped and became a terminal extrovert. So <laughs> I can find myself doing virtually any one of those. But I, I do have a preference. What about you? I know which one I would do. I would do C because I don't like bullies. And I might be doing that with my voice shaking, but I would stand up and I would use my outside voice and tell everybody that they did not have to comply with a request to prove that they were legal residents of the United States. That's what I would do. And I'm certainly tempted to do that one. And part of my history with activism, and particularly anti-war and other forms of activism that I've been involved in, I tended towards that when I was younger, but I think spiritually, I decided number, the B, the commonly engaged officers in conversations, it says in hopes of distracting them. But in fact, I would actually look for producing a change in them. Oh, I like it. I believe in it. I'm, I'm an optimist about people. Yeah. I think that for me, it's C, partly because of my family history and my father's work with refugees that I feel like if someone has fled their country and left their family and their home and everything they know behind, they're in crisis. People don't pick up and leave for a lark. It's not an easy thing to do. And so compassion is really what is called for in my view. So we're talking about activist types, and once someone identifies their activist types, then they have some sense of how they could do their work. There's more to it than just knowing your activist type. I might have originally been leaning towards the, well, much more towards being a headliner in the past. I think now I'm somewhere else on the scale. I'm flexible. Mm -hmm. But the important part is if I'm acting not in my activist type, my work is not going to be sustainable. I'm not going to be resilient at what I'm doing. You talk about both those factors. How do they play into your view of how activism can best happen? Well, anytime you're trying to do something that is way outside of your comfort zone, you may be able to do it for a little while, right? There's that initial sort of burst of energy that might carry you for a little while. But at some point, you're just going to hit a wall. And it's just going to be one of those things where you say, this is not for me, I can't do this. And rather than get to that point, what I really want people to do is find where they are comfortable, find where they do feel like they can make a contribution and start from there. And then you can build muscle. You can maybe stretch a little more in one direction or another direction. But the other thing you said that struck me is you said you sort of started as a headliner and now you're more something else. And I think that that is just part of life. We change, you know, our circumstances change, what we're doing changes, who we are if we have small children is different than who we are if we're retired, right? Our capacity is different and we are just going to engage differently. 
And that's just part of being human. And I think to expect that we're always going to be in the same relationship to our activism is flawed thinking. We need to look at what makes sense for who we are and where we are in life right now. And that's how you can sustain what you're doing is you you meet your activism from a place of reality and truth rather than a, I wish it was like this, so I'm going to pretend because keeping the pretense up is really hard. I've been involved in so much activism over my life. One of the things that I've questioned is, would I have the energy to do this if the person who was being injured was right in front of me? A dying person, a bleeding person at my feet has an urgency that I can ignore when they're over in Palestine. Mm-hmm. So I try not to let myself off too easy in terms of how much skin I put in the game. But on the other hand, there are billions of people suffering and dying across the world, and I can't fix all of them. So somehow finding the right place between them uh, seems really important in terms of being resilient, in terms of being able to persist in my actions. How do you go about finding that wisdom? I don't know if you realize this at all. I don't know if you've had any connection with Quakers, but you essentially described what I would call the clearness process, the thing that we use to try and sustain ourselves. It was part of the decision-making that I went through in terms of founding and beginning Northern Spirit Radio way back 18 years ago. I had a clearness committee help me focus on where I'm called to, where I need to put my energy, what my root nourishment comes from and so on and so i see you doing that in your questioning where did you get that wisdom i don't know i find it fascinating that that is a process that the quaker faith engages in i love that because i think that we could all gain from doing that kind of thing frequently in our lives (laughs) but i think Probably the truth of it is I grew up with parents who were very critical thinkers. And when I went to college, I remember my dad said, I don't care what you study, just learn how to think. And I was so offended. I was like, wait, you don't think I know how to think? But I realized later that, no, I really didn't know how to think yet. And that that was the gift of having my ideas challenged and being in conversation with people with different points of view than mine and really having to have those critical thinking kinds of conversations. So I think it probably came somewhere out of that, just growing up with that as the background to how we engaged in my family. In my family, you could hold any opinion you wanted as long as you could make a good argument for it. You couldn't just say, because I think so, that was never going to fly. But if you could make an argument, a reasoned argument, my parents were like, well, we may not agree with you, but okay. (laughs) Did they have the same responsibility? They couldn't just say, because I told you so. You know, that honestly never happened that I can recall. I don't recall them ever saying that. It, It probably just wasn't really necessary because... I knew if I said why, I would get an answer. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes when you're a teenager, you don't want to hear it. So you just, you just say, okay, whatever. And 
skulk off to your room and slam the door. Or do something passive aggressive. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen that. Folks, we're speaking with Onkari Williams today for Spirit in Action. Her book just released is Microactivism, How You Can Make a Difference in the World, and in parentheses, without a bullhorn. And she joins us from Western Massachusetts, where she's got over 30 years of activism teaching people how to make a difference with their lives. And that's in addition to all of our activism before that as a political consultant and so on. But you can learn more about her by going to umkariwilliams.com. I've got the link on Northern Spirit Radio, and I'll have a couple other links that you'll want to follow as well. I've been doing this for 18 years, spoken to all kinds of wonderful activists, world changers, world healers, and it seems to me, Amkari, that you especially try and bring the two together. One of the things you emphasize is in your activism, it's good to have a plan of self-care. Yes. And I think this may also be because you're a woman and because I'm a man and a man, you know, it's, we, we're all fans of the Black Knight. And when, when, uh, he gets his arms cut off and he says, ah, oh, flesh wound. And we're ra- <laughs> <laughs> we're raised with the idea of no pain, no gain. And evidently that doesn't call to you too much. No. When I say self care, I really am talking about the things we do that build resilience in us. I love a mani-pedi as much as the next person, and I will never say no to a spa day. But that's not the core of resilience for me. That's not the core of self-care for me. The core of self-care is really taking care of my spirit so that I can keep doing the work because our spirits are what takes a beating in activism work because it's hard and it's long and often we know we're not going to see the end of the journey it's just you know it's it's a generational process and that can be really disheartening so for me self-care is community and finding the things in life that give me joy that really do nourish me whether it's a beautiful sunset or just time walking alone in nature or a conversation with a friend over coffee where all we do is laugh. I mean, you know, the things that make you recognize your place in the world in the best possible way that connect you to nature and other humans and just the magnificence of life in the best possible way. That's what builds resilience, I believe. And those are the things that I think we need to put more attention on rather than the things that are more ephemeral in terms of their emotional sustenance for us. Folks, you are listening to Spirit in Action, and you'll find the links again to Amkari on northernspiritradio.org. Please leave us a comment when you come by, and you can also donate to support us. It's through your support that we go on. And this is an important factor in terms of how we can have longevity to activism. 
Some people go to a corporation, and corporation will use you for their needs, and that's why we don't accept donations from corporations or from government, but rather from you, the listeners. So please make a difference that way. Omkari Williams is teaching us to do this. And one of the things that you mentioned, Omkari, that struck me that too few activist leaders, teachers, instructors, as you are, that they do, is it's important to make yourself sustainable by having community support. Too many people think it's individualism that you do that. You've got your ideas, so therefore you'll go out. And there are some people who can thrive that way. It's it's fairly rare. Talk about community, its role. You talk about finding virtual community, in-person community. What about you? Where's your community? I'm really lucky. I have both virtual and in-person community. I have a community of friends and neighbors within, you know, a half a mile of my home. And we are like family for one another. We celebrate holidays together. We take care of each other's homes. If someone is out of town, we, you know, we just support each other in whatever ways we possibly can and whatever ways are needed. And nobody thinks twice about it. You know, it's sort of this little mutual aid group and it's so perfect. So instead of constantly buying things that we need for one thing, we'll first say, does anyone have this tool that I need for this job? And someone almost always has the thing you need and you borrow it and then you return it and then they need something from you a different day and the cycle goes around like that. And it's just really lovely. It's so nurturing. And, you know, sometimes we'll all meet up for coffee on a Saturday and just hang out for a while. And um, one of us is Italian by birth and very fond of dominoes. So he's taught us all how to play dominoes and we'll have these cutthroat domino tournaments in the local cafe. And it's wonderful. And they really keep me going because they love me and I love them. And they are committed to making the world a better place in their various and sundry ways. And they appreciate my commitment. And it's what community should be. And then, you know, of course, during the pandemic, when we were all isolating I wound up making friends online, so many friends online in a way I would never have anticipated. And every now and then I'll all of a sudden realize, oh, I've never met that person in (laughs) actual the flesh. And it's the weirdest disconnect. I think, how is that possible? We were so close and yet we've never met in person. And so... One of the things I'm looking forward to on the microactivism book tour is I'm getting to meet a couple of people that I've been in community with for a few years now that I've never actually met in the flesh. And I'm so excited about that. Tell me a little bit about the tour. I haven't heard about it before. Where are you going? When? How long? How many places? I leave tomorrow, publication day for the book, and I'm going to Boston, New York, Atlanta, Brunswick, Georgia, Savannah, Georgia, Louisville, Kentucky, Chicago, and then Portland, Oregon. Unfortunately, Chicago is still a six-hour drive away from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I don't know how you missed us. Oh, you know, there's only so many (laughs) cities you can get to in a certain amount of time. 
And part of the thing that you have to engage in is self-care. And touring is a very demanding and tiring, and it's a disorienting thing for most of us. Yeah. I mean, right now, the challenge is getting everything into a carry-on suitcase. (laughs) Good luck. Thank you. And you're going to build muscles carrying things around, too. Oh, yes. This is when I wish that, you know, I, I don't know, had someone just a Sherpa (laughs) hauling things around. It's like, oh no, but it's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm really looking forward to meeting activists in different communities, especially young people. There's one event that I'm going to be doing in Brunswick, Georgia. And if people recognize the name of that little town, it's because it was the home of Ahmaud Arbery, who was so brutally murdered. And this particular event is set up for younger people. And so I'm going to meet a, a, a lot of the younger activists in Brunswick, Georgia. And I'm very excited about that because they're the future and they have so much understanding about the world that they're living in and the world they want to see and bridging the disconnect between those two things. And I feel like there's a lot for us to learn from the younger people and their energy and their commitment and their passion and their love. So I'm very excited about that. Stop. Folks, one of the things you're going to find out if you read Microactivism, and I hope you will get a hold of it and read it, is that Omkari Williams will be dealing with real world situations. One of the things that I loved, I think far too few people take into account, is the levels of activism when you're trying to also deal with raising children. And some people seem to pretend that that doesn't happen, doesn't exist, doesn't affect your schedule. You know, I was in a situation as my son was growing that I could do the kind of activism. But I think in part I could do that because I also had the support of my Quaker meeting. And this was a not unheard of thing. It was a pretty common thing throughout much of our history. But our society, I think, has trained us away from community support and said, instead of, you know, having coffee with friends, what you need to do is go spend your money at Starbucks and have a deluxe experience. Right. And that means that we end up investing in corporations and things instead of in connection. Exactly. It is one of the reasons I so enjoy our coffee and dominoes thing. I bring my coffee in my thermos across to my neighbors because I want it exactly the way I like it. And that way everyone's happy and we all just show up with our coffee and we do our thing. Occasionally we go to a cafe, but often we'll just hang at someone's home. And it is true. You know, my youngest brother has two little kids. They are just turned three and not yet one. He does not have time. He has a job. He has a wife. He has these two little kids. He has a very cranky old cat. He has no time to do the kinds of things that I have time to do. And I think we need to recognize where we are and be realistic and be generous about that and not say to someone, oh, well, you should be doing more because blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. Let people figure out for themselves what is possible for them. And when we do something and it makes a difference and we see the difference, 
then we're encouraged and we're inspired and we can do more and it becomes a joy, not a burden. Because we will not continue to do things that are burdensome. That is just against human nature. We need to find our connection to the joy, even if it's never going to be constant, but there has to be joy or we will stop. That's just how we are built. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that. One of the phrases you use several times in the book in a negative sense is the idea of people who believe that you must go big or go home. Yeah. There's no such thing as just writing one postcard per week, if that's all you've got time for, or phone call, or one letter to the editor, or however it is. You can't do that. You have to invest your entire life in it. Uh, actually, there was a, a couple I knew in Milwaukee, and they had been mainstays of political activism from their mid-20s. In their mid-30s, the woman said, uh, I want to have kids now. This is an important time in my life to do that. And her partner said, no, we, we signed up for activism. This is what we're going to do in our life. We've got to be going to committee meetings every day, every night of the week. And because that's what we had started off on. And she said, yeah, that was true 10 years ago. And this year it's time for something different. And a lot of people don't understand that you can also have seasons of your life and change the priorities of your needs. Absolutely. And I think that it's also important to understand that that can be reflected in what your activism is directed towards, that what is important to you in one moment may be supplanted by something else that feels more urgent in another moment. And that does not make you flaky. It makes you responsive. And we need to be able to respond to who we are and where we are and what is happening around us and not just have this idea that, oh, well, you know, I said I was going to do this and I now have to stay on that path exactly the way I thought of it 10 years ago forever and ever. That's not realistic. And it's not even really healthy. We need to be able to adapt. We're not the same people we were 10 years ago. I sincerely hope we have gained some wisdom in the 10 years that have passed or whatever length of time it is. And that should be reflected in the work that we're doing. It should be reflected in our activism. I'm going to step into some of your personal life again. I find myself that community and spirituality and spirituality broadly understand. For instance, I consider labor unions as they used to exist as spiritual community, that they were in fact caring for one another in the deepest things so that they could do their work together. So I find that very important. I notice above your head, there appears to be someone sitting in meditation. Maybe that's, <laughs> they've gone to the top of the mountain on your mantle there. How do you do your self-care? What is your spiritual route that keeps you focused for so many decades on changing the world in a positive way? I sort of pull from a lot of different traditions. I do think meditation is really important, especially in our very, very noisy world. To just be able to sit quietly for a little while is, for me, essential, because otherwise my brain just starts to short circuit and I don't feel like I'm functioning particularly well. As I said, I did not grow up going to church 
I remember asking my parents if I could go to church one day and they said, well, you can certainly go. We won't take you, but you can go. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but all right. So I, there was always this longing in me for that. And so I've studied different traditions. I actually lived in a meditation ashram for three years. And I just feel that the highest thing we can do is to treat other people with love and respect and to show them the dignity that we wish to be shown ourselves. You know, it really is the golden rule. And I try to live up to that. Some days I am more successful than others, but I think overall I'm pretty good at it because I've been working at it really hard for a long time. And I try and forgive myself when I make a mistake. I try and forgive other people when they make mistakes. It's easier actually sometimes to forgive others than it is to forgive myself. And I just think we're all trying to get through life as best we can. And it's not easy. And to go through it with some compassion and some kindness and some generosity makes all the difference in the world. So that's basically my spiritual path is to be kind and to be generous and to be compassionate. And to drink coffee and play dominoes. Coffee and dominoes. And I am really cutthroat at dominoes. So let's just be clear about that. <laughs> okay. I'm afraid as we talk about that. As you should be. <laughs> so you talked about three years in um, meditation. Was this actually some kind of sangha or was this some kind of other group? I'm, I'm really wondering what community supports your activism, how they come together? Is it just random people you met on the street? Uh, how do you yeah, find I each other? I just bring home random people from Well, the that's street. a good thing to do too. Yeah, <laughs> I've done um, it. <laughs> it's kind of a combination of people I've met over the course of my life and over the course of many different experiences and places that I've had. And also just people that I've come into community with because they've become teachers for me. I've read their books or taken a class with them or experienced them in some way because I certainly don't know everything. And I feel like it's my obligation to keep learning and then to be able to distill what I've learned and where it's applicable to the work that I'm doing to to show that and to share that. So that's what I try and do. And folks, we are speaking with Omkari Williams. Her book just being released, uh, maybe tomorrow actually, is Microactivism, How You Can Make a Difference in the World Without a Bullhorn. And we're skipping through some really important topics that she has in the book. You'll find that the book is a relatively quick read. It's maybe 160, 170 pages, but there's a lot of space for you to experience and think as you go through it. So it's not dense text. Uh, I think you're going to find it a joy to read and to profit from. One of the things that you talk about, Omkari, is that you talk about finding your community and building resilience, but you ask this other question that a lot of people I'm sure don't think about. What's your legacy? Yeah. Legacy is, you know, the person who wrote the forward for the book is a dear friend of mine. Her name is Layla Saad. And Layla talks about how to be a good ancestor. And she and I talk about this all the time. And when I think about legacy, you know, I, I think 
it's not just the things that we're going to give people. It's what they remember of us, how they feel about us, the experience we have left them with. And so I think of legacy as something we build every single day in the actions that we take and the words that we speak. And I think that if we held legacy in a more global way, that we would understand it very differently and we would move through the world differently and we would be kinder. We would be more generous. We would just have a softer sense about us and fewer hard edges because what we want to leave is people feeling loved by us and loving us. And so I think that that's how I think of legacy is what are we building that spreads love, that spreads healing, that spreads peace, that increases dignity? What are we doing that that leads to those outcomes? One of the things you emphasize from Kari that I think is way too neglected is you should celebrate your little victories, your little accomplishments, the steps along the way. Absolutely. You know, it's all very well to celebrate the end of the world war. And that's important. I, I don't want to neglect those things. But just the fact that you got your postcard out this week on time yep. is an important step. And let's have a party. And exactly, let, you know, let's have coffee and dominoes or whatever. Well, yeah, maybe not dominoes because I'm not so nice at dominoes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I feel a little bit safer knowing that your dominoes are over there in Massachusetts and I'm here in Wisconsin. You should. That's that's wise. <laughs> but. Really, that celebration phase is so important and people need to do it even for little things. It's it's a different consciousness of the world that it appears to me that you're raising up. That's my goal is that we don't just celebrate the huge big wins. We celebrate the tiny ones because it also means that we can commiserate for the small things as well as the big things. And again, it's about community and lifting one another up and just bringing ourselves together and recognizing that this is not a solo pursuit. This is a group pursuit, and there is great joy in that possibility. I want to end with bringing the focus back to you, Omkari. And one of the things that is part of your life experience is being a Black woman in a culture that has far too much white supremacy and marginalization of people who are women or of color or in so many ways people get marginalized. I think that actually the biggest one is by class and that ends up being disproportionately a catch place for a lot of other people who are marginalized from other reasons. But you're a black woman. What effect has this had on your activism, what it's led you to do, uh, where it directs you, where it's fed your passions and where you can celebrate? There's no way to separate out being a black person, specifically a black woman in this society from my activism, because I walk down the street and I am wearing things that make me visible in ways that white women are not visible in this society. So it's definitely made me more aware of other people's marginalization and how that impacts them, because I know for myself some of the things that people have said to me without realizing how hurtful 
you know, things they've said to me that they meant as compliments that I hear. And I think, are you kidding me? You know, when people say to me, you're so articulate, I'm thinking, well, yeah. And do you hear what you're actually saying? Why are you surprised? It informs my understanding of the world. And it makes me, I think, a more acute observer of humans. And that's partly as a safety thing. When you are a marginalized person, whatever that marginalization is, you are more aware of the larger, the powers group than the power group is of you, because you have to navigate that in a certain way in order to remain safe in the world. So I think that in that respect, it's given me an advantage. I'm more aware of power dynamics than a white woman typically is going to be, all other things being equal. And knowledge is power. And it's also harder to go through life like this. It takes a toll. It hurts your heart. And that just is really unfortunate because life is hard enough. And yet it is what it is. And part of my goal is to make it so that it's not that for generations to come. Well, you're contributing significantly to moving the world in the right direction, both with your 30 years of life coaching, your activism, your consultancy politically, all of the things that you've done over the years to get us to this point and through your book, Microactivism, how you can make a difference in the world without a bullhorn. Again, we've been speaking with Omkari Williams. She's in Western Massachusetts, but she may be coming to your town soon on her tour, which is going to be happening over the coming weeks. So I do hope you have the good fortune of meeting her in person. Omkari, thank you for coming with this loving heart, this thing that's going to do real world healing and make a difference in the world. And thank you for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark. This has been a lovely conversation. I'm really happy that we had a chance to connect. Even though we had to go late into the day. And again, I appreciate you're doing this at the end. I hope it's sustainable because we can talk this way. I think that this was a worthy conversation to save for the last one. So thank you so much. And again, Omkari's website, omkariwilliams.com. In case you don't know how to spell Omkari, Come via northernspiritradio.org. I have links to her and all my guests the past 18 years. And please get a hold of microactivism and be part of world healing. And join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every